Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. We had our own guns when we were like nine, ten years old. And I remember getting my first 410 and, you know, I was nine. I had to carry it around for a year unloaded just to show that I was responsible enough. Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and episode 87 with Teddy Keane. Teddy is the creator of the magical and intrepid children's books, The Lost Book of Adventure and Journey to the Last River, which follow the journey of the mysterious unknown adventurer. I stumbled across Teddy online by chance, and he's just an incredibly unassuming guy who quietly gets on with his life, his career, and his own expeditions and exploration. I knew very little about him going into the conversation and was amazed by his life story and his creativity. In this conversation, we talk about Teddy's own adventures, growing up in a family of explorers, ex-soldiers and storytellers, and living a life full of interest and intrigue. Over to Teddy Keane. Can you just begin by giving us some context and introducing yourself? Tell me who you are, what you do. So um, my name is Teddy Keane and I'm a writer and illustrator um, who likes to go on adventures and I make uh, children's books or probably what I call family books for children and adults. Um, but yeah, that's basically what I do. And so where did the adventurous side come from? Um, it's a, a good question. Probably have to start quite early. I suppose, um, grew up in a fairly adventurous family. Um, my dad was in the army and, you know, that went back generations, um, so we all have always had some pretty good bedtime stories. Um, and we were, I grew up with my brother and we're often out in the wild, just being feral and having little parental oversight and just, you know, free to do what we liked. And that's kind of where things started, yeah. And so in terms of those, I mean, you've said obviously that you write stories what stories were you told that motivate inspired you when you were little? Ah, uh, well, um, my dad was a great yarn teller. Well, it still is. Um, you know, he, he led a few expeditions when he was in the army. One was to King George Falls in Guyana. 
which you might know is probably called Camarang and Uchi Falls, um, first overland expedition to reach them in 1962. He was 22, in charge of 40 men, like his first dip into the Amazon. So it was, yeah, it's a good a good story, and he's a good storyteller. So yeah, we grew up with stories like that. His dad was a spy. Um, and he had some amazing stories. Who never really told them, but um, my dad sort of got them through to us in in a number of ways. Um, and we, yeah, just uncle and aunt. They left school, and then decided to cycle down to Cape Town. Um, that was pretty impressive. I remember when they came into my school when I was about eight years old. And I felt like the coolest kid in the school, like, you know, my uncle and aunt. And they were like 19, 20. Um, so you're having those those kind of people around us um, in the family and just kind of just picked it up from there. My, my grandpa as well, um, he, you know, a lot of war stories. He wasn't an adventurer, but he always found himself getting into scrapes, you know, whether it was you know, needing meat and having to hunt crocodiles in Sri Lanka. And then he, he built a raft out of a float um, from a plane, a float plane that was like in the jungle and falling apart. So he cut out the top and he dragged it two miles through the jungle and went paddled out. And halfway into the lake, you know, um, it was taking in water and, you know, there was this tree, old tree sticking out in the middle of the lake. And, uh, you know, he had to climb up it. He lost his Lee Enfield rifle and, and stuff. And he just, he sat on this branch and you could see all these crocodiles around the place. And I said to him, I said, well, aren't you scared, you know? And he said, well, that, what good was that going to do me, you know? And he's, he's a quiet man. He didn't say much. He just... He, he swam to shore. It was quite a way. Um, he nearly drowned. He got weeds caught around his ankles and stuff. And that's one of the stories in in one of the books I've written. Um, anyway, like he he managed to get back without being eaten by crocodiles, and yeah, he was nearly court-martialed, I think, for losing his rifle, which was you know punishable. And luckily, the the more senior commanding officer let him off, got him off. Um, but his CEO was, you know, going to court-martial him. So, but yeah, just, I mean, bedtimes, dinner times, this is this is the stories we got. And, you know, whether male or female family members, it was kind of, you know, it was always a good story. But, I mean, the answer's obvious, I suppose, but what has that done to you? Because that's a really rare upbringing, isn't it? To, be, to have a family that's filled with that many kind of stories of, different types of adventure I suppose yeah um I think that twinned with you know having a childhood where you're sort of free to roam and you know having to make up your own fun and all you had was like a churchyard and some fields or something you know your imagination got to go places and you know that sort of you create your own adventures with your mates or my brother and and also my dad was up in Scotland for much of our our life and um when we went to visit him on holidays you know he's you know 
military guy into shooting and stuff like that. So we had our own guns when we were like nine, ten years old. And I remember getting my first 410 and, you know, I was nine. I had to carry it around for a year unloaded just to show that I was responsible enough. And I don't think I'd do that with my kids. I'm not massively into shooting, but um, I like the idea of like showing that you've you've got to be responsible and you know you when you're given like a deadly weapon you're like as a kid you it does make you grow up and you know you go oh shit you know i could i could kill my brother you know i mean he shot me twice so there's no reason why (laughs) (laughs) oh he's gonna listen to this anyway yeah well that was with air rifles and and other things but anyway but yeah so anyway it was that kind of uh, roaming into the wild and and then the sort of backdrop of great yarns and I guess just being a privileged family like the people who got to see the world or they just happened to be pre- adventurous like a lot of sailors in our family who you know went off some of them made their own boats and sailed around the world and there's a certain level of not expectation but you just grow up and you sort of pick it up that you know oh this this isn't abnormal. This is, this could be, this could be a life, you know. But you, that word, that was a word I was going to bring up as expectation. Do you, well, did you feel when, particularly when you were younger, I guess, did you feel like you had to be something? Um, yeah, I think so. Uh, it was never spelt out and it wasn't, oh, you had to do something adventurous. I think, having like especially a dad like we've got who just you know cast a big shadow and did many things in his life uh that expectation that you know achieve you know you need to do something um you know he wanted us to go in the military um you know and then I went to art school so it was was comedy moment he took it well um it's not like a sort of hard stiff upper lip military guy but um but yeah I think that sense that you just have in you you know and some of it's your own personality and some of it you know is maybe nurtured yeah well let's let's before we move on because there's a lot I want to talk about with the adventurous side but I guess the art when did that begin and when did it become a passion that was probably my first passion I was about three when it started. I remember just wanting to draw all the time. Um, one of my earliest pictures, it just says, my dad in the army. And it's like a picture of him. It looks really bad, but it's like, it's kind of iconic. I look at it now, I go, that's a classic, iconic, really childish drawing. There's a Chinook in the background hovering and, you know, he's got like straw fingers, but he's got a massive like M16 or whatever. But, uh, yeah, so it started early and I I loved um, drawing still lives and I had great art teachers who kind of took me under their wing and we used to go out and, um, you know, explore woods and paint and um, I wasn't particularly good but I was really into it. Uh, And then as I got older, I, I went out often on my own and, you know, painted and drew, um, that and fishing. So I'm, um, I'm a fisherman and uh, I was from a young age. And my dad, you know, he's a 
a shot and my brother's a shot and I went into fishing. You know, I sort of found it myself and that's what got me out more than anything, that and painting into into the, the wild places. Yeah, and you've obviously taken that with you as you've travelled. Yeah, well, so the fishing is, is I, I don't know if that's what you're meaning, but the, the I'll start with the fishing. I've actually found it one of the best ways of getting into a culture and meeting people, often the poorest people in a culture, the ones that are ignored the most, because obviously they're not doing it for sports, they're, they're doing it to feed themselves. But there is something, there's a language, any kind of language you share, especially when you don't speak the language verbally, the idea, you just smile and you just like know what it's like to catch your dinner and stuff. And many times, you know, been invited back to someone's house for tea or, you know, it breaks the ice, it's a bond and you don't have to speak the language. And that's what I love about it. And fishing's one of those things that you go anywhere in the world and you get straight in there at the at the fundamental end of the culture, which is for me the most exciting part of it, the most humble. But I didn't mean the fishing, I meant the art, but the fishing's <laughs> fascinating because I think it, yeah, it's one of those, it's a kind of a leveler. You know, you're yeah. you're arriving and without saying anything, it says I'm an outdoorsman, doesn't it? If you know how to fish. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, and like you're comparing kit, you know, like, and I often had like poachers rods, like telescopic things that I could smuggle away or put on a motorbike or something like that. And, you know, some of them have never seen a telescopic rod. Um, and, you know, kids in Africa with a stick and a and a, a line and a hook, which they've made out of barbed wire. And they're showing me wiping my eye, you know, catching fish in some lake, you know, and I'm like got the Gucci kit and like not catching anything, you know, it's... It's great yeah <laughs> but yeah the, the arts yeah so that 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 got me got me out but weirdly when I'm out sort of wandering wild places I often don't take enough time just to stop and paint or illustrate and actually I stopped all my art um for 12 years it just, I lost the urge to paint. It just disappeared when I was about 23. For I don't know what reason, but it just kind of went. Um, and then 12 years later, I ended up somehow writing a book and doing some scribbles. And the publisher said, oh, we quite like your scribbles. Can you do colour? And then I, I sort of refound my my art, I suppose, then. So it was... It was so most of my adventuring is is not entailed art. I've, I've, I've pictured it in my head and I've kind of sat there and felt the sublime, uh, often trying to take a photo or something. But really, you know, I'm not a slow traveller. You know, I, I'm energetic. You know, often you, you want to put your body to the limit and it doesn't really fit quite with the... I mean, you'll know as a photographer and as a filmmaker, it's quite hard sometimes, I'd imagine, just to stop on an ice pack or whatever and I go, oh, I'm going to spend half an hour, like, capturing this this sunrise, you know, when you want to get to the peak or, you know. So, yeah. Yeah. Or a day. I think that's yeah. something that interests me is with people who do travel slowly is the idea of stopping for a day. Yes. Which is a wholly foreign concept to me but yeah. something that I think would be amazing. 
yeah, there, there's definitely no right way to do it. But, you know, as I get older, I'd probably say slow travel is, is the best travel, you know. Uh, but some environments don't really fit stopping too long, um, which I'm amazed skipping ahead a bit to the Amazon, but like like Alexander von Humboldt when he was exploring the Amazon and the stuff those guys did and the notes they took and the specimen. I mean, they it wasn't exactly slow travel. It was like full-on travel and also full-on science and illustrations and stuff. You know, it's like, how on earth do you do that, you know? Yeah. But it was a whole different world. I mean, I suppose it does still happen now in its own way, but there's the how much... That's an interesting thing, I think, is how much of the romance of it was what inspired you to want to go and do it. Of the... Tr- the tr- of, of adventure expeditions. Um, that uh, is a good question. I think my idea of it, what adventure is has, has evolved over time. I think earlier on it was kind of doing something a bit crazy and like hadn't been done before. And it could be quite low-key, like not worth a podcast, but like <laughs> worth sort of a few weeks with mates, you know, and a good story. Uh, but something that was grueling and like, could we make this? Can we do it? Like that kind of like pushing yourself and... But now it's it's getting more and more like exploring, not as an exploration, but like exploring a place and its wonders and the sublime and trying to capture its, why is this place? Why has it captured me, you know? And how can I communicate that? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's interesting. And like, that's where I want to head to with the books when we get there. But um before we do, what were your first, I guess, I don't want to say, well, adventure expedition, that's a whole thing, but what were your first adventures and expeditions as a young man rather than as a child? Um, so I did a few, in my 20s, I did a few fun things. You know, I went up into the Himalayas on motorbike, um, did the old Royal Enfield thing, which was just incredible and just got the hit of India, which was amazing, and also the Himalayas, and lost three or four of my nine lives uh, <laughs> managing those roads. Um, I think um, I did... I don't know if it's the right moment to talk about it, but I did a, a charity event... Um, which ended up with me ice skating 200 kilometres across the Arctic dressed as a penguin. I think you should probably talk about that. (laughs) (laughs) It's not something you can just gloss over. Yeah, well, so I've got three brothers, um, you know, and I was kind of inspired at that time. One of my older brother was doing certain military selection sort of thing uh and he was keen for me to join him and my wife my girlfriend at the time was like well it's it's either me or army you know so that was like I know where I was sort of put there and um and also at the same time my one of my younger brothers um who has a disability was 
had been through some huge operations, you know, craniofacial operations. He has a thing called Apert syndrome, um, which affects your certain parts of your body and your skull. And we'd always grown up with, you know, him in hospital, the Great Ormond Street, you know, being an inspiration to us. Um, and I kind of, I think not being able to, I think the idea of doing what my older brother was doing and really pushing myself physically and seeing what I was made of was at that time really important to me. And then also this kind of idea kind of came into my head that, you know, I could do it in my own way. And also I wanted to do something to raise money for Great Ormond Street Hospital, which had done so much for my my brother, other brother. And something came up. Uh, my wife showed me a newspaper article about this crazy, it's like the world's toughest ice race, um, 200 kilometers across Finland, you know, around the frozen lakes. Um, and I thought, well, maybe I could be the first Brit to attempt that, you know. I don't know why I thought that. I just thought that would be impossible for me to do. And my idea of raising money for Great Ormond Street, where you've got kids doing facing the impossible on a daily basis, it's like, well, let's let's try and do something which I think I cannot do. Um, and that led me to, within three months, learn how to ice skate uh, properly and um, build awareness of what I was doing, um, basically taking the piss out of myself on the internet. And yeah, I mean, it was it was fun. It was frightening just like sticking your neck out like that and basically for something where you think you're going to fail. And it kind of just grew and grew and I was on the news and stuff and, you know, uh, there's a mad, mad Englishman attempting this event and he's in a penguin suit because he got the kids of Great Ormond Street to design his Lycra, Lycra suit and Angus chose that one. Ended up becoming known as Teddy the Penguin in Finland because they got Eddie the Eagle and I've, I became friends with the race organizer. Basically, the race is for like the world's top ice skaters. And then when I phoned them up, I said, Oh, can I can I can I sign up for this 200 kilometer event? And I think just the fact that anyone f was mad enough to even suggest it, there was like a loophole in the rules. Like, it's like, well, we've never said that no one could attempt it. So they said, Yeah. In fact, we're going to Holland next week to train. Why didn't you come with us? So I ended up flying out to Holland <laughs> with these old pros and being taught how to ice skate on these long-distance ice skates. Um, and that's where they coined uh, Teddy the Penguin. Uh, Teddy Pingvini, they called me. Um, and I ended up doing that event. And it was cold. That's the hardest thing about it. So one of the things, you've got the blades, ice skating blades, and you think they go across ice very, you know, quickly. Below minus 10, they actually stick to the ice. So your energy is actually much more. Um, and, yeah, it's full of cracks, and it's not like an ice rink at all. And your blades are 19 inches long. Uh, so it's quite a technique. And I sort of just about ma like managed it, not mastered it. Um, and then the, the weather conditions were pretty bad. It was like minus 20, 30 that morning. And the, the race had been cut down to 140K because of the conditions. But because I'd raised so much money for charity and all this sort of 
press and stuff, I was like, well, can I try the 200? And they said, well, you can try. Yeah, okay, we'll let you try. And yeah, somehow I managed to to do it. And there's that moment, um, sort of at about 30K to go. And at this point I was, you know, had a six inch ice beard, you know, couldn't feel my extremities and um, it was dark. And then the, ma- the, the marathon organizer came on on his four wheel drive car and the lights lit up. So he lit the track up for me and drove around the, the, the court, this sort of this lake. Um, and I somehow managed to, to finish and yeah, it was so that's a very long story and I, I'm sorry, I kind of gone deep in there. No, it's but, great. Uh, it was a, and it was, it was hilarious. I got to say, like looking at it from afar now, it's like mad, but it, you know, it brought attention to, you know, what I wanted it to and did some articles and newspapers and raised a lot of money for, to charity. So that felt good. That felt good. Where do you think you got the, I mean, you might have sort of answered this already, but where do you think you got the confidence to just think, I'm just going to go and do that? I think, yeah, so it's got something to do with the ego, I think. And um, I find when my ego gets in the way, like I'm less confident. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of self-aware because it's about me. Whereas, because I was doing it for kids, and in my head, I was, it was, and the videos I was making, it was like I was doing it for kids. It's like, who's this weirdo, you know? And that gave me a freedom to kind of like, fuck it, you know? I, I didn't, I had no shame, you know? And in a way, that freed me up to kind of give me the confidence. And, you know, was, this is, this is bigger than me. This is uh, these kids and my brother and stuff who, you know, inspired me. And, you know, that, that, that unlocked something and maybe it was letting go of a fear of failure or something and going, well, it doesn't matter if you don't make this, but I know I was determined. It's really interesting because, you know, in the research I've done, like narrative defines a lot of the adventures that you've done and been on. And I I definitely like to talk about Italy. I think it was, Yeah, yeah. but it's the same here. It's the same with the penguin suit. I mean, rather than just saying, Oh, I'm going to run the dragon's back race or I'm going to walk here. Yeah, it seems important to you to find a story in something. Yeah, that's looking back on it, you connect the dots. It's like, yeah, that's that's totally it. It's like I've done adventures where it's just been fun and sort of epic, and but the ones that's, that I can actually remember when I try and write them down, it's like, yeah, they started with a reason for doing it. Uh, the like the Italy one was so when my grandpa died um about eight years ago i almost immediately knew what i needed to do one of his stories was an epic four five hundred mile behind enemy lines escape to freedom across down the apennine mountain range in italy so the spine of italy he was one of many prisoners of wars who escaped and did similar routes um so it's not about bigging him up and he would never have done that. But no one really knows what routes everyone took. But I did ha- I do have his diaries, which are like my prized possession. And, you know, I worked out where his roots was. 
it helped that I knew he took the ridge a lot, you know, down these mountains. But I and I knew which villages he popped into when, and so I, I basically created his his escape route over five hundred miles, and then I I went and I attempted it. But I just did like the first first leg of ninety miles or so. But I took a diary. That's my first sort of proper solo trip, and yeah, it's not like you know the Himalayas or anything, but it was it meant a lot more and i could i had these moments where i was walking along this ridge and you know i, I before he died i put a, a book together of his adventure and escape which is one of the things i'm most proud of actually and um oh this is a guy who wrote me a letter once saying i'll cut you out of the family will because you're conceited when i was a teenager you know so it was important to me Growing up, when I got older, it's like I, you know, I love this guy. I respect him, and I, I, you know, I, I don't want to be that guy I was when I was younger, and so to earn that. So doing a book with him was amazing. And then you're know, walking along these ridges, and butterflies coming up as you walk through the the grass, and that that that's written in the book, you know. And you have these moments where I was walking alongside him, and I could picture, and I could feel what it was like in that war environment, you know, the feeling of the world is at war. Like, it's really hard to imagine that, but I got I got glimpses of it. And at night in the thunderstorms, I'd be on this mountain ridge in a little bivvy, and it you know, had all around thunderstorms, and it was, and Florence was in the background, and it looked just like Florence was being bombed. And I, you really felt the hairs on the back of your neck going, you know, this is what it was like, it's what it felt like. So anyway, that was... That was great, and the family's sort of taken that that route on. So we're all like, like, pass the baton of the, our own diary to do this whole walk, um, and yeah. So that was that. That was fun and and quite, you know, personal. Yeah. So the plan is to finish the route as a team, as in each of you does a piece. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and it might my, my kids might do it as well. I'd love to do it with my kids. I'd do a section of it. Yeah. How far have you got? Well, the the pandemic sort of slowed things down a bit, but probably about two hundred miles in, my aunt did it on her own at the second leg, and you know that was all new to her. So, and for her dad, you know, it meant you know that was it meant a lot to her. So it's it's really fascinating experience, really fascinating. Yeah, God, it's so interesting. I think. I ask this question with total kindness, but it sounds like an incredibly positive family environment in lots of ways. This kind of community of people who are high achievers or have done interesting things. And we've talked a little bit about the burden of expectation, but was it wholly positive? Oh, in the family? Yeah. Uh, And that style of upbringing, I suppose. Yeah, it wasn't um, close in many ways. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't, you know, we come from quite a sort of old school family and, you know, I used to get beaten sometimes, you know, by my granddad. Like he'd pick me up for nicking runner beans and give me a smack. But he was cut from a different cloth and um, we, yeah, just like slightly stiff upper lip. But, you know, I, I'm not the same really with my kids and stuff. But, you know, it's... it's um, 
that was just how it was. I was at boarding school for the age of seven, so it was that's naturally going to sort of put barriers up a little bit with your family, but everyone's the same in it, so you don't think you're any different. It's like, oh, this is normal. It's only now as you get older and you've got your own kids, you go, that's not normal. <laughs> Do you want I don't want that. No, exactly. Well, I was going to ask. afford it, but I don't want it. <laughs> yeah. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So where did, I mean, we haven't talked at all about your career. I think it might be worth giving us some context and what you did and what you stopped doing and yeah. where the inspiration for the book came from. Sure. Um, so I... I went to uni and I, I started advertising, like creative advertising. Um, not because I wanted to sell things, but I was quite interested in creativity and coming up with ideas. And it's a difficult industry to get into. Um, and yeah, I just kind of, I veered off from my, those years of wanting to be an artist or a geologist or explorer. They kind of, when I hit my teens, they kind of drifted away from me a bit. I always had my passion for the outdoors, but uh, this is a career and so I got into advertising and I was in there for about 10 years but it did pay for my my weeks away doing these these other adventures so I always had the two separate lives a bit um, and you know I got to a position finally where I was sort of a bit success like I was sort of what I would have called successful like you know earning pretty good money and sort of like hiring people and sort of at the, not the top table it wasn't a big agency but you know it was creative and it was fun and there's a great quote I read somewhere um I may mess it up but it's basically that the three most harmful addictions in life are you know smoking heroin and a monthly salary and I remember reading that going, yeah, yeah, I, one of those in particular, you know, kind of, um, and that, that, that comfort thing. Um, but a lot of things are happening at the same time. So having, getting married, having kids, that feeling of settling down and, you know, having a career and doing what's best you can at it and bringing your money, paying mortgages, trying to buy a house, all that stuff. So all that pressure um, to do the, sort of middle class thing and you know um but having kids after a couple of years of not seeing them you know coming in late and um yeah I was like I remember having this moment like this the light bulb moment where I was like you don't you don't have to do this the rest of your life you know I never pictured myself as being some ad man in my 50s or in a suit you know I like Mad Men, but that wasn't me. And it's like just that realization, a huge weight came off my back. It's like, 
you know, go and do what you love, you know, go and sell something that you love, as in, you know, I was selling insurance or whatever. Some of it was Greenpeace or, you know, great stuff, bad stuff. It's like my passions are the outdoors. And as that moment of realisation, I wrote myself a postcard, which I still have framed on my wall. And on the back, it just basically says, you know what you need to do. Uh, your wife's with you. You're, you know, don't talk about it. Like, work on it um, and save up. You know, so don't quit straight away. You know, give it four or five years, and then and then and then jump. I didn't know what I was going to do, but I knew it was to do with the outdoors. And then two years later, um, something changed all that and brought everything to a head. Two things happened. I something happened, and I was at the opportunity to take on the company as a director, and you know, have a lot more responsibility which I was excited but nervous about. And also I had this plan, you know, and I knew if I got in here, I'd never get out. Um, and then something happened to one of my other younger brother um, who ended up in a, a fight and um, his head hit the pavement. He was at art school in Falmouth. And um, he got up and he got himself home but he was having a brain hemorrhage, um, but no one knew. And he got to bed. It's called a lucid period, basically, where you can have a brain hemorrhage and still think you're, you wake up and you think you're fine. And he went to sleep and his flatmates, like, I think it was like the next day, midday, they're like, oh, Jack's not woken up. You know, students, I think they found him in the middle of the night, passed out in the bathroom. They didn't realize he was actually in a coma. Um, and they dragged him into bed and then, and then at two or three o'clock they tried to wake him up and he wouldn't wake up and then the helicopter arrived and, you know, 17, eight hour, 18 hour brain hemorrhage, um, you know, gone. And the only reason they kept him going was they said, well, he's, he's what, 19, 20, um, and, you know, he's strong and fit and, you know, there's a chance, so small, but we're going to give it a go. So, yeah, um, of getting that news, you know, already have been through this situation with another brother nearly dying and now number the next one and just like just, you know, rug pulled from under life and, you know, being there. I remember reading him a book, um, Penn Haddo's book, Solo Trip Up North Pole. I used to read that to him um, when he's in a coma. And they basically said, you know, it's it's not looking good. And um, but somehow he made he came out of it. You know, he came out of this coma. I remember him raising his thumb just slightly. You could hear us. I know you have this experience like with your, I think, friend Malcolm, and and understand it and what it's like. But still, we thought we'd be feeding him with a spoon if we were lucky for the rest of his life. And he made this. You know, he. He came through, you know, amazingly. Um, and he now leads nearly normal life. You know, he's, he's back to his old self. I mean, he's paralyzed in certain way, ways. He's, he's missing sight in his left eye and all these things. But, you know, he's Jack and he's back and he's he got a brother back. And But at that time, it's like, you know, life's short. 
I need to, I need to make this this jump, and that was the motivation. So it's interesting two periods of my life that led to sort of like the ice skating thing, and then you know me deciding to you know quit my career and just basically you know stick my neck out there and go right I've got this vague idea and a lot of belief and inspiration from my brothers so make the move and what did you do uh <laughs> luckily I'd saved up a bit of money um I didn't know what it was going to go towards but I, sp I spent about a year doing freelance work and and thinking about what I wanted to do and I quite quickly realized that um, I think I read a book called Synchronicity and it was basically about doing something bigger than yourself and I having kids and stuff I realized I wanted to get kids outdoors you know I love my passion is the outdoors I want to spend time in it and how can I use my skills as a communicator to leverage that and then solve a problem you know I found a great problem which I knew and I've always felt about kids not getting outdoors bring 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 home when you when you've got your own kids and you see you can really feel it and yeah I was like right I'm going to try and get kids outdoors I had no idea how I didn't know I had ideas for charity I had ideas for um, businesses you know where I'd take people out on expeditions or families um, but often my ideas would start with a book like like a brand book almost like um, you know Hyatt Denim have uh, great brand books and I used to look at those and I thought well what would that be for adventure um, and my wife eventually like ran out of patience like bloody hell just do something um, why don't you start with a book you know you can write um, a bit. Uh, and so I spent four months, you know, just coming up with ideas for books. I would go around my friends and i go, is this any good? Which one do you pick? And everyone picked the sort of same sort of thing. And it basically became this like how-to adventure guide for kids and their parents. Um, and once I'd realised that was what I wanted to do, and I have like, you know, my family taught me all these knots and camping and, you know, how to throw knives or whatever. So uh, that's kind of, it was all leading in that, that direction. But it is that, but it's so much more, isn't it, than just a how-to? Yeah, so it, it kind of evolved. So it, it started as a how-to. I spent a number of months, I did 80 pages on dens and shelter building, 80 pages <laughs> Uh, I just went literally down the rabbit hole and I became like a child and, you know, just the imagination and just going these places. And, um, and you know, I shared it with a friend and he said, oh, do you mind if I share it with this guy? And they, they said, oh, oh, it's cool. Do you mind if I share it with this guy having to be a publisher? I got a call saying, we want to make a book with you, you know, just on dens. I said, but this is just the first chapter. And they're like, <laughs> what? <laughs> and then through that, I got an agent um and then and I think maybe because the industry's like fear of missing out I ended up meeting lots of publishers and I ended up with eight publishers wanting to publish the book which was like it's just mind-blowing having thought that you know I was just doing this for my own kids really and hopefully maybe a few others and a really humbling experience um 
and yeah, just, and then, so the, the idea kind of evolved when I found my publisher, which is Quarto or Francis Lincoln kids. And some of you will know that Francis Lincoln, um, God, the name's going to go now. Oh no. Uh, the guy who did the, all the, the great books and maps and illustrations of the Lake District and... Um, Wainwright? Wainwright, yes, yeah, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> so they did Wainwright. I remember seeing that going, oh, I'm going to turn down Penguin for this. Like, it wasn't just that. But uh, yeah, so um, and together we evolved, you know, like pushing the idea. And then I had this sort of crazy idea of what if... You know, there were stories. What if I could get my family's stories in this book? So you've got all this how-to stuff, but also put in real adventures, like inspiration. Um, and, then it, and then I thought, wow, it's a bit tricky. Like, who are all these different people, different stories? And then I came up with the idea of, well, maybe no one knows who this was. And it's one person. And then hence the, the idea for the unknown adventurer came about. And yeah. I built it around this idea that on one of my expeditions, the Amazon, I came across the lifetime's work of an unknown artist and adventurer who somehow created all these notebooks and diaries, which, and a little letter he'd written to some nephew and niece, you know, potentially saying, you know, if the, if this is found, I'm off on expedition now, but if this is found, I want you to have this and hopefully inspire a life of adventure. And once I had that, then I had a sort of hold all for all these incredible stories, whether it was a few of mine, my friends, my families, the other explorers who I've met, and kind of creating a home for a sort of Father Christmas of adventure, if you will. Um, yeah, that was the idea. And I can't, I mean, there's a book, you know, 70 centimetres away from me now. Your name isn't on it. No. And even if you look at the back in the copyright, I had to get them to put take my name off it because I didn't, the whole myth of it, I almost want people to believe that I'm nothing to do with it and it is real because for kids, and there's some savvy kids out there, <laughs> but I like the idea that they they have this, this person they believe in um, and it can be whoever they want it to be. And so keeping that not sacred, I'm very happy to talk about it here because I'm talking to adults. Um, but for the kids, it's like you keep up the the conceit. Um, it's difficult when I'm doing talks at festivals and stuff and I got parents in the audience and I'm lying through my teeth and they're like looking at me and half of them get what I'm doing and the other half are like completely like, no way, you know, <laughs> it's hilarious and I've got to keep a straight face. And they come up to me afterwards and they go, well, so where in the Amazon did you find this case? And ask me these really particular questions and I sort of bat them off. But it's like, I'm cringing. Uh, but it's all for the greater good. Um, yeah, and that perfect segue into my next question, which is what is the greater good? So, I mean, I'd imagine the people listening to this and you, whether you've got kids or not, or, you know, it's like, you know, to get the younger generations outdoors is that's it on my on my wall I was telling you earlier it's like I've got a few things written down um I, I wrote myself an advertising brief very early on and I summed it up with a line which was 
inspire escape by any means necessary. Um, and I've stuck to that. I've also got a picture of a tree which has planted a flag in, in a person lying on the ground covered in blood. It just says, be conquered by nature. Um, but yeah, those two things, uh, adventure and, and nature. And for me, the key, what I figured out when I was doing, making the book was the key to, is to get kids out there first. And adventure is the thing that's going to do that for most of us. For me, it was fishing. Um, my connection with nature came many years later. I just happened to have grown up in nature and surrounded by it because of my pursuits and my fortunate surroundings. Um, but that growing that love of nature and the wonder of it, you know, and the outdoors and why we love doing what we're doing and that, that getting those moments that we can fully appreciate. Not that it's for everybody, but giving kids that chance to know that it's possible. And then the how-to element of the book gives them the tools to make it possible. It's so much detail in it that it's actually for adults. It's actually for parents who aren't that confident and to go, you know what, I don't know how to make 20 different types of fire or whatever, or what do I, even just the small things, like how do I go to a loo in the wild? You know, the unknown adventurer actually shows you maybe 20 ways you can go to the loo in the wild. 10 different ways of wiping your ass, you know. Um, so, yeah, but there's so much detail in there. It's like give families the confidence to go, we can do this. That I mean, that is such a good point because, and I think, again, a lot of people listening to this generally, I would say, are leading adventurous lives in some way and those with children are probably taking them out into nature. But as we all know, there are lots of people in Britain and the world, obviously, who who aren't taking their children outside and those children aren't experiencing the natural world. And what you've done is extremely clever because you're giving parents, you know, they get to, I don't know how to phrase it, they, they don't have to be embarrassed about the fact they don't know and it's giving them a method, right? Yeah, and and also there's nothing like a bigger incentive to go and do something than when your kids ask you to do it. So if I can get the kids inspired enough to go, hey, mum, dad, uncle, pop, whatever, you, I, I want to go camping. And then, and then, and here's how to do it. And I'll actually teach you how to do it, mum and dad, if you don't know. Obviously, a lot of listeners here know exactly what to do. Uh, but, you know, a lot of people don't and giving them that confidence yeah, and actually, I think sometimes, because I, I don't know, actually, every, you know, I don't, I don't know many people who listen to this, but there are people, and I don't know if they all go camping regularly. Mm. But for those who don't, what is your big sell? You know, why go and spend time in the wild? What does it do to somebody? Um, well, for kids, I think it takes a fear away. Of something they don't know if they don't if they don't know it it's like so it's enlightenment of of knowledge so you learn about the natural world and what trees sound like at night or whatever um which is great in itself um but you also get to push your comfort zone which i think is really important for us as humans as to find that line of where your comfort zone is and and be a bit adventurous. I wrote a, a letter, another letter to, but for my kids once, and 
I've never shown it to them. It's more for myself. And maybe if I didn't come back from an expedition or something, but it's basically, I wanted them to live adventurously and live an adventurous life. It didn't matter what they chose to do. They don't have to be into the outdoors. I hope they are in some way into it, but it's more like that finding your comfort zone and knowing where that line is between that and what you could be doing and things that might scare you or, but there's a great quote I heard from none other than Will Smith and his grandmother the other day. And he said, one of my favorite quotes from my grandma when I was younger was, um, the best things in life live just on the other side of fear. And I was like, I didn't expect it to come from Will, but it was like, yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, so so doing things like getting outdoors um, is a great way of, of doing that. And also, I mentioned earlier, I took a bunch of guys from a, a housing estate. Some of them were ex-gang members and drug dealers and stuff. Um, a friend of mine runs a charity called Regenerate, um, which is amazing. They're based out of Roehampton in London, one of the biggest uh, housing estates in Europe. And he said, oh, can you take some of the guys and me across the mountains? Um, there's a Fagaras Ridge in, in, in the Carpathian Mountains, which is pretty epic. And I was like, yeah. So me and a friend did that. And it was one of the most rewarding things of my life. Um, and it was the first adventure I did really not for, for me and well, it was for me in a way, but it was like doing it for other people and helping other people. And, and these guys were legends and the banter was beyond anything I'd ever experienced. And, you know, it was wonderful. And these guys hadn't seen a tent before or mountains. And, but it was that going from these, some of these guys were absolutely stacks and like full of confidence and sometimes bravado and, and then that going up the mountains and then seeing that the quiet come. And then in the evening as we're on the mountain tops looking at the sunset and hearing some of the stuff they were coming out with about how it's the first time they'd actually felt they'd done something like that, that they felt proud and they've achieved something and that all that sort of macho stuff disappeared and you're just left with a, a quiet strength and like the, the being humbled in the mountains you know the feeling and and that, that's wonderful and I'd love I love, love my kids to have that and I love everyone you know to sort of feel that sense of you know sort of you've earned your this strength but it's kind of in a really humble way yeah and I don't mean for this to be difficult in any way but you come from a privileged background in yeah. many ways those guys are from deprived backgrounds absolutely to what extent do you think well, how do you feel about accessibility and the outdoors at the moment? Um, not so good. <laughs> not so good. I mean, looking at, you know, Instagram, for instance, you know, when you look at all the followers or whoever's into adventure, you know, it is of a certain type, you know, and we probably fit the bill, you know, yeah. um, so yeah, that's and that's that's something I think. And there's stuff going on, and there are lots of interesting people out there from all walks of life doing really cool things. Um, and the fact that's growing is absolutely awesome. I do feel that that's something lacking from what I'm doing with the books. And you know, how can I 
reach out to these people and you know so i'm going to start doing more school talks and you know if any listeners want to <laughs> hit me up with their schools or whatever then you know i'd love to go and take it to the schools and especially in like inner city places and stuff and see if there's something there not to sell books this is to like sell the outdoors and yeah but i'm sure if i put my thinking cap on i'm sure i can i'd love to take that up as a challenge it's like how do you spread this out this wonderful thing that we love and get it to more people and i'm sure i'm sure there are lots of listeners who you know nerve stuff going on which is which is happening but that's part of why i mean you said when we were chatting before we pressed start that you know the unknown the unknown adventurer is probably a man and is probably white given the hand that you see in the book yeah but there is a lot of power in that person not having a name yeah you barely see them um so yeah, i mean the book's translated in 13 languages now russia china korea all, all over the place um, so obviously I think that idea of it not being some, I mean, it is probably is a white male European person who is that person because that's my background and my grandpa and all the people that inspired the book to begin with. But I've tried to keep that person, that ego out of it. And so it can be anybody. So you're not seeing a, a person, you're seeing a, a thing in your own imagination, a person that you create. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's brilliant. Yeah. And you've talked about quite a lot about ego and bravado and obviously your past and how you grew up and lots of it resonates. Um, how do you balance those things now, ego and bravado? Well, it helps that I'm kind of, I've made myself vanishingly thin on the ground in terms of, you know, I've, I'm not on the book cover. I am inside as the editor and I explain the idea behind the book or as in like how I found the stuff. It's difficult because obviously I want to, I want to make the unknown adventure as famous as possible. And, you know, I've, you know, I have a fledgling Instagram account, you know, I'm, I'm sort of sticking my neck out into the unknown and getting into social media a bit. Um, but yeah, I want to, I need to sort of build awareness and, you know, almost a brand. Um, but how do I do that without putting myself at the center of it? And yet, as we're talking now, I'm kind of needed to communicate what, what the, the idea is behind it. So yeah, I need to kind of figure out a way of doing that where I can sort of reach as many people as possible, like doing talks at festivals and schools is a great way of doing that. Um, but yeah, I mean, all the people that I admire and respect in life and often from the adventurer side of things are the the ones who may not call themselves adventurers like it's the thing is like when the publisher said oh, are you an adventurer I'm like well I don't know what the current Alistair Humphreys puts it really well in his new book uh, how to ask an adventurer um, and I think he sums it up well um, about explorer and adventurer and what it means now but for me, it's I've I've got people in my family who've done like far greater things than I've ever done, and they're like, "Well, that was just my holiday," or, or you know, that was I had to do that because you know I was in the war. Or so I, I feel like labels like that for me, I, I've you know, I find that a slightly difficult um, 
as I'm worried about my ego overstepping certain people that I look up to. Um, but yeah, I, I think, but you do need, like the drive and stuff does come from your ego, doesn't it? It's, you know, that wanting to set yourself challenges. I love challenges. I need that, that, that runs me, you know, and that, that is, that is ego, isn't it? There is something there where you kind of, you're trying to prove something to something, somebody or yourself. Um, so just getting that balance right. Yeah. I think often ego and insecurity are bedfellows, aren't they? And that's a really interesting, you know, kind of, (laughs) it can be a big rabbit hole to go down, but it feels, and then I think if you were to also throw another word in, I think purpose is an interesting one. Purpose often solves insecurity and it seems like you have got great purpose now. Yes. So I think finding this idea of like escape by any means necessary and kids, so it's really fulfilling and um, yeah, having purpose is, there's a book I read, I think it was, what's it called? It's one of the, the Do Lectures books um, oh, by David Hyatt. Anyway, it's brilliant. Here's this Venn diagram of these three circles and one was like your passions, one was the zeitgeist and the other was like purpose, I think. Uh, and where that meets in the middle is kind of like, aim there and that's kind of one thing I remember um but yeah the purpose thing what is the purpose trying to remember that it's it's not about me it's kind of like and the new book actually was a bit it has wandered more into kind of my realm because it you know I ended up going into the Amazon and doing quite a, a big adventure there because I, I partly, I wanted to do that, you know, and that, that's me. It's like, I mean, there's a reason why I did that and why I wanted the unknown adventurer to, to not just do how to manuals. It's like, like he's done this real stuff and, you know, inspire through story rather than just, you know, fact. Um, yeah. I don't know if that answered your question. It did. Absolutely. And I think, yeah. Can you just give me a quick rundown of, we haven't talked about the Amazon. Yeah. Why did you go there? What did you do? And what did you find? Um, so you may have, you know, in the book, it says I found this, all this stuff in the Amazon, one of my adventures there. I'd never actually been to the Amazon. I've been at lots of nice places, but, you know, having grown up with my dad's stories from the Amazon, it's like, I'd love to go there. And a lot of the original stories are based there. So I was like, well, I came up with this idea of doing a series of journals from the unknown adventurer's journeys around the world. And his first one was when he was a young man and venturing into the Amazon uh, in search of a lost river. And I kind of partly built it around a story that I thought would capture the imagination of children. And partly I, I also wanted to go and find a river that hadn't been explored and you know, it was, it was a real ball ache trying to do this off my own bat and trying to find a fixer and, you know, you know, pulling the logistics together for an expedition like that, really low key, you know, not loads of money, just, you know, a couple of, uh, indigenous guides from a local village in the mountains and then finding this river and, you know, it was really difficult, but really exciting. Um, so that 
there's that side of it. So I, I we got to go into the Amazon and um, explore some unexplored mountains in Guyana. The whole book, it doesn't tell you where it is, and it won't it won't tell you specific mountains and what rivers it was, uh, because the whole point of the story is that kids and any readers, there's there's a secret in this story, which is part partly based on truth, and you don't I don't want and the unknown adventurer doesn't want people to know about it, and they, I certainly don't want people, you know flying out there and going oh they found this out there and you know we'll have some of that because it might destroy the place and yeah so there's that whole secret element to it so but it was in Guyana and we found the most amazing place and it was bloody hard and a lot of canoeing and a few very close moments um my, my friend Chris who I do these things with he he met me out there and he arrived and he was wearing a lady's bonnet and some really dodgy Bermuda shorts and a sort of shirt from the office. And he was like, um, my bag's disappeared on the plane. Like, and I don't know where it is. It's gone. And it had every, uh, half our stuff was in it. Um, satellite phone, all the stuff you kind of want where we're going was gone and it was that moment where you kind of go you take a big swallow and you go right okay so this is this is proper adventure now going in at the deep end and no there's no help if if something goes wrong except our amazing guys that we're with and there were five of us in total um but yeah, I, I'd already had in my head, I'd already formulated the idea for this book. So I was kind of living the book through this journey that we were going on, learning as much as I could about the rainforest, the skills. I made bows and arrows, we were bow hunting, um, you know, learning about all the plants, the animals. And that's that was a big part of it. So it was like the full on like adventure. This is what it's like you know, being capsizing in rapids surrounded by electric eels or getting bitten by snakes. And then, but also like stopping and going, ah, this is for kids. <laughs> uh, right, what monkey's that? Okay, what's cool about that? Why is it throwing shit at me? You know, all this stuff. Um, so yeah, it was very much a mixture of like ego adventure, like boy's own, girl's own. We're out there, we're adventuring. Um being conquered, not conquering, because that's a big part of the book as well. So the unknown adventurer goes on a bit of a journey from, he starts off wanting to conquer the Amazon um, and ends up kind of being conquered. So that's, and I, you know, I felt that out there. Um, and yeah, that's the, the wonder of the place. I mean, you, you know it, you know what it's like, it gets under your skin and it never goes. So um, yeah, I, I could talk. All day about that. I know, well, that's the hard thing, isn't it? <laughs> it's a whole episode in itself is one journey. Yeah. So, and again, there's no pressure to this. I mean, I'm hoping that I've got this right. So you are unwilling to say exactly where you went. Yeah, <sighs> yeah. And when you read the book, if you read it, uh, you should because I've given you a copy. Yeah, yeah, I was going <laughs> to say. Um, yeah, it's some people might recognise it uh, who've been out there, but they're... 
Yeah, I think there's always something fascinating about a secret and not, you know, the, the, in the book it says, like, you know, the unknown adventurer realises that he's a, a, a guardian of the last river. They call this the last river for a reason, um, which you, you find out if you read the book. But, um, you know, and the reader at the end hopefully also becomes a guardian of this place, which is, you know, this book is in... It goes towards conservation. Uh, obviously, it's the Amazon, and obviously, it's a really exciting place. So you've got all these dangerous animals and exciting moments, and near-death experiences. But really, after all that, once you've been broken, and you kind of you find the sublime out there, however you do, you you are touched, and it's those little moments, like seeing a a, a butterfly come down and drink the tears. Uh, or the tears from the the eyes of a turtle in front of us. See, we saw this butterfly, which uh, is either new to science or is probably the largest butterfly ever recorded in the Amazon. Uh, it was about thirty centimeters in diameter. I think the record in the Amazon is about twenty. Uh, I, I need to talk to scientists now about this to find out. Um, uh, yeah, all sorts of little moments where it's just like, oh my god, like just jaw dropping wonder and often the most small things once you get over like oh deadly snake here deadly snake there it's like well you know there there are tiny little things going on there which are incredible and i should say that you know as well as the stories being based on my experiences the anecdotes and stories within the book are nearly all real so i go and talk to scientists meet explorers um there's a guy called john harrison who you've never heard of maybe but probably one of the best explorers of the amazon by canoe and like he was willing to give some of his stories in the books because i said it's for the kids and everyone's like oh it's for the kids that's fine like, and I, I give i give everyone who gives a story to the books uh, an original painting uh of their adventure story and that's my way of saying thank you um, so yeah, I, I might tap you up later on. <laughs> oh my God, it's um, so worth that. <laughs> yeah. So, so the unknown adventure is very much, it could be anybody and people feeding into it. And I'd love to be able to tell the stories of the people behind it. I'll tell you one. So there's a, a scientist I met at the natural history museum called BB, who's awesome. She's Brazilian and she spent a lot of time in the Amazon and she's a herpetologist. So she studies like snakes and frogs and I, I met her at the, the museum and got talking and hearing all her stories and I really wanted a female protagonist in the books um, and I said ah, could you be the unknown adventurer's sister and she was like uh, yeah I suppose so um, and it ended up not being his sister but a, a close friend and colleague but it's very much based on her it is her visually it's her background um, her knowledge of the rainforest and stuff. So, yeah, it's not just a figment of my imagination. And maybe it makes the book lesser because I haven't imagined this incredible thing. It's actually based on real people and real settings. But she's like the heart of the book in many ways. And I loved that. And I love hearing about the fascinating things that she's worked on and that they are in the book. So it's all real. And I love that. Yeah, and I think, you know, you could argue both sides, obviously, but it, to me, it's documentary. You know, that's, I mean, as filmmakers, artists, whatever, we we are curating those moments, but we're altering them 
in the way that we record them, we bring something of ourselves to them by the nature of what we do. Yeah. You choose what to include and what to omit. But I think what's special about what you do is that it becomes infinitely more relatable. And it's almost to use the Santa analogy. It feels like once you discover that the unknown adventurer as a child, maybe you read it at seven and you carry it through until you're 12 and then you work out that some dude called Teddy actually wrote these books. Yeah. It can carry on and it can continue because then you grow up, you realize he's real and that real people have had these adventures. Yeah. That's just maturity. And um, there's a really good quote. You've done a few quotes. I'll give you one. You might know it already, but um, Tolkien says, um, every good story is a truth and a half, which I love. I think that's the basis that, of... That's great. That's yeah. lovely. As he also did another great one, which is like <laughs> every good story, well, with his ones, start with a map like he often like start with a map mm. and this book starts with a map you can literally fold it out of the book which is cool but i love that idea of just like plotting another world even though it's very much a real world but but yeah that is cool brilliant um i end every conversation with two questions interpret them however you wish yeah go on what scares you um I'd like to say something really noble about how I'm really worried about the next generation of kids uh, not getting connected with nature and being outdoors. And that does that does scare me. I think, you know, something I think about a lot at the moment is, you know, can I make this work? You know, can I sell enough books to keep this this purpose alive or, you know, it's going well, but you know, there's always that fear, insecurity as a writer or creator of anything. Like sometimes, you know, you're, you're, you have the Nero's thumb of, of the world, you know. And also, um, you know, I got diagnosed with arthritis in my hips this year. And that was like a bit of a sucker punch, sucker punch to, to me because all my pursuits revolve around often carrying weight or, you know, my hips and, so just getting used to that and what that means going forward and whether, you know, obviously I can, if I can get a hip replacement at some point, if I need it, then I've got so much, luckily there are much worse things than having hip arthritis, but that's one of the things in my head is like, you know, I was hoping to go to the Himalayas and like, you know, I can barely get up a hill. So it's like, do I, you know, um, do I really face up to that and, and attack it head on or do I just sort of go well that's not meant to be you know and then just see what what comes and I, I, it'll be fine I'm sure but yeah so not the noblest one but yeah it's, no, it's, it's the truth honest one yeah what brings you hope um yeah well that that is probably the kids <laughs> <laughs> yeah I think they're seeing what's going on and sadly because of climate change probably but like the impetus and the energy especially coming from schools and all sorts of places whether it's Greta or or whatever and it becoming more mainstream and how important natural history is to kids and getting kids connected with nature and it's becoming very real and as with all those things once you see the challenge, then people can step up to it. And now we know what the challenge is and kids are being invited to step up and seeing what's going on is very inspiring. Amazing. 
Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. For more information, check us out on Instagram at The Adventure Podcast. The podcast is a Cold House production and is hosted by Matt Pycroft and produced and distributed by Ola Omari and Alex Hall. If you'd like to get in touch with a guest suggestion or to give us some feedback, then you can do so at info at theadventurepodcast.co.uk.